Our text this morning is Revelation 14, verses 6 through 13. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. After the sermon, let's sing hymn 41, stanzas 1 through 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together and dealt last with the book of Revelation. So it's, it's a good idea that we spend a moment to orient ourselves in the book of Revelation right here in the present time. We saw in Revelation 12 and 13 that there is incredible hardship and persecution leveled against the world as a whole, but particularly against Christians. We saw that the devil is described as an enormous red dragon. He's already been defeated by Jesus. He no longer has access to heaven. But now he makes a concentrated effort on every human being, picking out every Christian, customizing a particular persecution or temptation for that person to try to get that person to deny Jesus as Lord and Savior. He also has helpers, accomplices. He has the beast from the sea and the beast from the dry land. Now these are human institutions. These are human beings who have lived any time from the first to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they are targeting Christians. They can represent anything from brutal, raw power like politics, governments, banking, industry, to the more seductive things like the media, culture, education, and and false church. People are being seduced by money, by sexuality, by drugs, alcohol, the beauty of the human body, or just the pleasures of life. They're being seduced to forget about Jesus Christ and enjoy the good things of life. But some are also being persecuted. 
lose their job, lose their promotion. Throughout the ages, there have been millions of Christians who have been imprisoned, who have been forced into slavery, who have been killed for their faith. It is a brutal, harsh world in which we live as a Christian. We've also received tremendous comfort. Even at the end of chapter 13, we saw that the number of the beast is 666. That's a very relevant number because six is less than seven. And seven is the number of completeness, of wholeness, of perfection. And it's the number of Jesus. Jesus is the King of kings, Lord of lords. He holds the whole world in his hands. He has perfection. He has the power. The beast falls short. The devil falls short. He doesn't make it any further than the number six. That tells us right away that our Lord Jesus Christ has the power and the ability to take care of us, even in the face of the devil and the beast from the sea and from the dry land. We also saw at the beginning of chapter 14 that beautiful symbol of Jesus Christ standing on Zion and the 144,000 with him. 144,000 is a symbolic number that represents all the elect, all believers. And we see that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that brings us to our text. And quite frankly, brothers and sisters, it brings us to more brutality and horror. But now the brutality and horror is not for Christians, but it's for unbelievers. There will be a brutality and a horror unleashed on the devil, the two beasts, demons, the whole unbelieving world, when our Lord Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, and he will cast all unbelievers into hell, into the lake of fire, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The message for us today, brothers and sisters, in this horrible Brutal reality of what will occur on the last day of the world is in the first place to give us strength, to be patient, to endure in our faith. Why follow the devil? He's going to hell. Believers go to glory. But the other thing is, and this is an important message of the Reformation, of the Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing what's going to happen to our world, it behooves us to get the gospel out there, the well-meant gospel offer, to call people to repentance, that they may be saved and delivered from that horrible day. We summarize our text in this way. God proclaims the gospel that judgment will come upon the nations. And we will look at the gospel of judgment, the content of judgment, and the blessing in judgment. From the opening words of our text... Then I saw, we know that John is receiving a new vision. And in this vision, he spots three angels flying in midair. Now we understand the symbolism of that, angels flying in midair. Clearly, they're coming down from heaven, from God himself, flying over the earth with a specific message for mankind. So we are to listen, and we are to listen well. We read about the first angel flying in midair that he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And we understand that this is symbolic and it has a very definite message for us. We know that the word, the gospel, is from God. 
It's inspired and illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes angels deliver it. The Bible says that the gospel is mediated by angels. Angels came to Abraham. They came to Joseph. They came to Mary. They came to Peter with a special message. But after all is said and done, brothers and sisters, who delivers the message to our world? In our world, there's not a voice, namely God, speaking from heaven that everybody hears the voice of God from heaven. There are not literally angels flying around in the sky proclaiming a gospel to all tribes, peoples, languages, and nations. Who brings the gospel to the world? It is people like you and me. It is people in life, in the streets, in the workplace, in the trenches of this world who are delivering the gospel. And that's an amazing thing. When we consider what we've learned from the previous chapters, we are in the midst of a horrible war where the devil, where the two beasts, where culture, media, the secular education system is all out to break us, to break our faith, to worship the beast, to take, take his mark, to take his name. So where are Christians? In hiding? Have they gone underground? Are they in catacombs? Are they in a room locked away? You can only get in with a secret password? No. You can find them in public places. Like the two witnesses in chapter 11, they stand in the middle of the street and they proclaim the gospel to the world around. It is proclaimed by one of our teenagers working at McDonald's, saying in no uncertain terms, I will not work on Sunday because it's a day of rest and worship for me. The gospel is proclaimed by one of our young people at college or university in a biology class where he or she calmly and yet firmly speaks up. And says, I do not believe the theory of evolution, but I believe that God created the world in six days. And that, brothers and sisters, is as magnificent and glorious as angels flying in midair proclaiming the gospel over the whole world. Christians are not in hiding. They're not underground. They stand in the school, at McDonald's, on the World Wide Web, In the marketplace, at work, they stand anywhere and speak clearly of the hope that is within them to bring that gospel out to the world around. It's like a shout coming from heaven that the whole world can hear that anybody around us, anybody who comes in contact with us will know of the hope that is within us and hear the good news of Jesus Christ and be encouraged to embrace him as Lord and Savior. Now we see from our text that the gospel which is being delivered has a special character or message to it. We read that he said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. What are we talking about here, brothers and sisters? We're talking about judgment. We're talking about the last day of the world when Jesus Christ will return to separate believers from unbelievers And he will take the unbelievers and judge them and take the devil and his demons and every unbeliever and cast them into the lake of fire. Judge them and put them in hell where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You would say, how can that be the gospel? 
How can the gospel be about judgment? How can the gospel be about hell? Well, it is a part of the gospel. It's a part, part of the gospel of our God who looked at a world which was under the dominion of sin, an entire world which was going to hell, and he so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have life everlasting. We have a God who wants to make a separation between good and evil, obedience and sin, working towards the last day of the world where he can create a new world and a new humanity, a people liberated from sin, who can live to his praise and his glory. The judgment of God and the wrath of God is an essential part of a great and glorious God who wants to rid this world of sin and evil and of the devil itself. The amazing thing is, there is opportunity right now, before the day of judgment, to get that message out also to people who do not believe, calling them to repent, encouraging them by the grace of God to accept the well-meant gospel offer of salvation in Jesus Christ, that they are not judged for hell, but judged for everlasting glory in the new heavens and earth. Now we know, brothers and sisters, only too well from our own experiences that our world is not terribly receptive to the gospel. If we look at our neighbors, the people with whom we work, if we watch TV, we listen to the news, you read, you see a world that has disdain for God. Says God is dead, God is poison, God is ridiculous. People are in love with money. They are in love with material things. They are in love with sexuality, with alcohol, drugs, and the good things of life. Some people are, are more lofty than that. They seek goals like to put an end to poverty and to racism, to do something about this alleged global warming. But when they do that, without regard, as our text says, for the God who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water, it is self-serving. It does not bring them closer to God or to the praise and the glory of God. We live in our world, which stretches out its arm and says, don't come to me with the gospel. I don't want to hear about Jesus Christ. I don't want to hear about God the Creator. But what we have here in our text, brothers and sisters, is a scream, a cry, like John the Baptist coming out of the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. World, wake up! The end is drawing near. Judgment is coming. You need to repent, because if you do not... You will be judged. You are going down. You will pay for it forever. Listen up. Listen up and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that brings us to our second point and the second angel. We read a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now, this is the first time that in the book of Revelation we read about Babylon, even Babylon the Great. We'll hear a lot more about Babylon in the later chapters of the book of Revelation, and then you get more into depth. But we have to ask the question, who is Babylon? What is Babylon? To answer that question, we do what we almost always do with the book of Revelation, is go back to the Old Testament, particularly to the book of Daniel. A lot of answers to the book of Revelation are in Daniel, 
and some of the other Old Testament prophecies as well. Particularly in Daniel 4, we meet Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, who has had a communication from God, God warned him, but he didn't listen. And we read there, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? So for Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon was the great city of the earth, and it was all about him. It was about man, his strength, his majesty, and his glory. Automatically, God responded to that and said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be punished. But from this day on, Babylon became a figure in the Bible and history as representing the world, and that would include the devil and the two beasts and all demons and unbelievers, but a world which ignores God, a world which seeks its own glory, which thinks that it's going to live by its strength, by its money, by its beauty, by its sexuality, and all human pleasures. From this day on, Babylon and Zion are the two polar extremes. The city of the world, the city of evil, and the city of God, the kingdom of the devil, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, pitted against each other. In fact, it is Babylon that destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Later on, it is Babylon, Rome, which destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And indeed, if you read Revelation 14, at the beginning of Revelation 14, we read about Zion, Jesus Christ there with 144,000. And here is Babylon, the city of the world, the kingdom of darkness, which stands totally opposed to Jesus Christ and his church. Now, our text speaks of Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now, this is symbolic, so we're not necessarily only literally talking about adultery or wine, getting drunk on wine, although that is a part of it. Babylon the Great is our world, which which offers a huge menu of delights. Our world will offer you money. It will offer you material prosperity. It will offer you wild opportunities for sexuality, however you want it and wherever you want it. It will offer you alcohol and drugs. It will offer you the human body and beauty. You want Botox? You want reconstruction of your face? You go. You can have it all fixed up for you. And people drink from that. They are intoxicated by that. They come to this Babylon the Great. They come to the world. It's like a, like a whore with all her delights, and with the booze and the drinking, and you can come to her, and you can drink, and you can be absolutely intoxicated, enjoying the pleasures of the world. How many have not been caught up in that? Not just in the world, but also from the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. People wandering, people being seduced into sexual immorality, People caught up starting to use illegal drugs or drinking recklessly or loving money so much that that becomes their greatest pursuit and greatest goal. 
Brothers and sisters, not, let's not, we're not just talking here about young people. We're talking about middle-aged people. We're talking about people like me, people like your parents and your grandparents. Maybe once they had a dream. Maybe once they walked close to the Lord. They started making money. And it became more and more important to them. After a while, the goal in their life was the material things that they possessed. And it overtook them. It overwhelmed them. And you might say, well, you can go through that stage in your life, but eventually you wake up and break free from that. But I have known people. I have worked with people who on their deathbed would talk about how much money they had in their bank. They died with a smile on their face, not because of the blood of Jesus, but because of what they had accomplished, what they had built up. It was their Babylon. It was their delight. It was like they were drunk. They were intoxicated on the the loss of this world and they couldn't even walk a straight line anymore. Where they said, nothing is more important to me. I mean, everything I have is nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. We live in a world, brothers and sisters, that is seductive, that is intoxicating, And it will pull you away. It will drag you down if you lower your guard even one moment and do not stay close to Jesus Christ. But our text says of Babylon, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And when you have a double word like that in the New Testament, fallen, fallen, that's actually a, a Hebrew expression which is intensification, which means this is for sure going to happen. Babylon has not fallen yet, but God guarantees 100% Babylon is going down. The third angel confirms this by adding. Let's read a little passage here. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. It is striking how in our text the image of wine is being used. Anyone who drinks the intoxicating wine of that great poor Babylon will also drink the wine of God's wrath. Full strength. Port full strength in God's cup. And if you have been drawn away from the Lord and taken up in the pleasures of this world, you will drink the cup of God's wrath. What are we talking about here, brothers and sisters? We're talking here about judgment and everlasting life in hell. We're talking about the day that our Lord Jesus Christ returns on the clouds of the heaven, clouds of heaven, and he will judge the living and the dead, and he will take the devil and all who have followed him and put them into the lake of fire, into hell, where they will be tormented day and night eternally. They will gnash their teeth. Some think that because our text speaks of burning sulfur and the smoke going up, that actually we're talking here about the annihilation of the devil and unbelievers. In other words, they will be vaporized. They will no longer exist. After the day of judgment, there's only going to be believers, the new heaven and new earth. Devil, gone, 
into thin air forever. But that, that's not what our text says. They will be tormented day and night forever. On the last day of the world, when Jesus Christ will come, the whole unbelieving world described as Babylon will recognize that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And they will watch as he wipes away the tears from the eyes of his people. He clothes them in garments of righteousness. He ushers them into the eternal wedding feast of the Lamb. While they, as unbelievers, do not change, do not improve. They still got the devil. They still got their sins. They still got their broken relationships. And they are going down into the lake of fire and into hell without peace, without hope, without a future, without any second chances. And they will be tormented day and night for eternity. They will weep and gnash their teeth. It is a day, brothers and sisters, of unspeakable horror for unbelievers. You cannot in any way try to make it nice or to sugarcoat this. The lake of fire, hell, is an eternity of despair. As our text says, there will be no rest. A lot of Christians struggle with this, brothers and sisters. They say, is God not the God of love? How can he let people be tormented for eternity? How could he do that? And that question becomes particularly poignant, pinpointed for us, because how many of you, how many of us, don't have a relative or a friend who does not believe? We might have a grandparent. We might have a brother or sister. We might have a child who no longer believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And our text speaks also about that person. I could have not said that, but we need to be honest here. We need to deal with the reality of the struggles of people in this congregation. What are you feeling when you hear a passage like this in the book of Revelation? You can't just ignore it. We struggle with it. We say, is God not love? Can God not have mercy even on the unbeliever? Brothers and sisters, our God is such a God of love and mercy. He looked at a whole world that rejected him. A whole world that fell. And he so loved his creation. He so loved his world. He sent his son to redeem a new mankind. To take people back from the brink of despair and to give them life everlasting. We have a God who means it when he says, here is the gospel for the nations, repent and believe. As it says in Ezekiel 33, do you think God has any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Why should you continue to rebel, man? Repent and listen to the gospel. It is well meant. Brothers and sisters, we do not have answers to all the questions. On the last day of the world, it will be horrible, it will be terrible for every unbelieving person. And it may hurt us to think about that, but at a certain point we have to stand back and say we have a God of love, of grace, of justice, a God who has given the gospel to our world. Now, 
Let God be God. Let God do his thing. God will do what is right. Meanwhile, we have a job to do. You got a friend? You got somebody in your family who doesn't believe? What are you doing to get the gospel out to that person? And here, brothers and sisters, we have to be very careful. You know, when your brother or sister, your child visits, and then if you're going to put on a big pious front, they can smell that front a mile away. They smell a rat, and they don't like it. If we want to be an example to the people in our lives, our lives, not about a presentation, not about a show, not about trying to convince people when they show up, but your life has to be so wholesome and so amazingly filled with the joy of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You don't put on a show, but your whole life just exudes, just just shows a passion for Jesus Christ, a love for what he has done for you. And it affects your marriage, the way you raise your children, your work ethic, so that the people who see that realize there's something special and beautiful about your life. And that becomes an opportunity to introduce them to the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that ultimately it is only God in his grace who can create faith. But we are his ambassadors. We are the people who are in the trenches of life and in this world. And it is through our example and through our walk of life and our talk that we can give a gospel to a world which is so broken and a world that's on a a wide, slippery slope to the eternal lake of fire. This is a serious matter, and we have to take it to heart. That brings us to our final point. We're looking at what's written in verses 12 and 13. First we read, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. So we understand that when we talk about judgment, when we talk about our Lord Jesus Christ returning and putting unbelievers into the lake of fire, this is not about them. It's, this passage is not about looking at those people who are going to hell and sticking out our tongue and saying, nah, 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 now you're going to pay. It's not about them. It's about us. Patient endurance for the saints. We are the ones who are being attacked relentlessly by our world. We are the ones who are constantly being seduced by our media, by the lusts of this world, by the secular education system, by people all around us. And our text says, endure patiently. You may be pestered and persecuted by our world, but our world is going to hell. Don't give in. Do not yield. But stay the course and fight the good fight of faith because you know that there's an eternity of glory waiting for you. Brothers and sisters, maybe we haven't always been so patient. Maybe we have lowered our guard. Maybe at the workplace when we were told, you want a job promotion, you want to keep your job, start working Sunday. Maybe we've given into that. Maybe we've given into the lusts of the flesh, sexual immorality, drugs, abuse of alcohol. Maybe too much of our life is, is filled with, with the desire for money and material things. Wake up. It's never too late. Listen to what 
our God, what our Lord Jesus Christ says in the book of Revelation, do you not know what will happen to you if you yield to the things of this world? The world is going down. The world's going to hell. But if you remain steadfast, and if you live by grace, and if you live by the word of God, and you walk in my way, says the Lord, I'm with you. I will protect you. And after you've suffered a little while, I will give you an eternity of glory. Look what is added at the end of our text. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. This really sums up pretty much everything we've been saying. We understand that to be a Christian in our world means that you have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. You will be attacked. You will be bombarded. Our poor children constantly seduced by TV, by the media, by the lifestyle of our world, and our young adults, and our older people. And there have been people in our congregation who have lost a promotion or lost a job because they wanted to follow Jesus. Jesus Christ says, Stay the course. Your suffering will not be long. There will come a day that you will die. And when you die, I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. I will liberate you from any more of the devil being able to reach out to you and touch you in any way. And I will bring you through that door of death to be with me in heaven and your good deeds will follow you. We're not talking here about work righteousness or earning anything, but the very fact that you made a career move because you wanted to better serve the Lord. The very fact that you as as a young person said no to a life of drugs or sexual immorality. The fact that our older brothers and sisters realize that the money that they have received is not about building up a big bank account, but to enjoy life and to work for the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, that will follow. That will go with you through the door of death. And you will find that God, in his grace, will discuss that with you and will bless you by grace alone. Brothers and sisters, we understand that if by the grace of God we remain faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ, We not only walk closely with the Lord right now, but we have an eternity of praise and glory. So be steadfast and be patient and serve your Lord Jesus Christ and be a wonderful example to your neighbor as well. And here, brothers and sisters, we we really come to the point. It's where the rubber meets the road. I think sometimes, and I say that because I know myself and my own weaknesses and struggles, I think sometimes we live our lives as Christians very afraid. We know the right thing to do. We know what Jesus has done. We know what he expects of us, but we are we're afraid. Afraid what people will think of us. Why would, I, why would I stand up in a university classroom and say, I believe that God created the world in six days. Why would I do that to have everybody laugh at me and my professor say, your marks are going down, mister. Why would I stand up at the job and say, what we are doing here is unethical and working on Sunday is wrong. We're afraid. Afraid of being laughed at. Afraid of 
losing our marks, afraid of losing an increase in salary. Brothers and sisters, what we need is a better vision and attitude to life, which the book of Revelation in our text is trying to create for us. Look at our world. With all its deceit and all its seductions, it's got nothing to offer you but the lake of fire. And you look at Jesus, who died for our sins, who offers us an everlasting glory with him. And if that fills our consciousness and our awareness, that we have this wonderful feeling, joy within us, of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, will you not stand up? in the mainstream of life, and say, Jesus is my Lord, and I'm proud of it. I'm willing to to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus, and I will explain to you the hope that is within me. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ not only demands that of us, but it's the only way that you can communicate to that poor, poor world around you where it's headed for. If you stand up in the university classroom and say, I believe God created the world in six days, you know, there might be a young man or a young woman who sits there quietly and says, Hallelujah. There are people who do believe. I'm going to stand up too and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I'd like to end with the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Amen.